welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio. Our meditation in preparation for worship this morning comes from Revelation chapter nine verses chapter one verses nine through eleven. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we prepare to enter into worship with you, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, May we have hearts of reverence on this Lord's day. And may your spirit fill us abundantly that the prayers we offer might bring you glory and honor. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please rise with me as we worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desires of those who are in awe of him. Our responsive reading comes from Psalm 148, verses 7 through 12. Praise the Lord from the earth. You praise ye creatures in all depths. Fire and hail, snow and clouds. Stormy wind fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills. Fruitful trees and all cedars. Beasts and all cattle. Dreaming things and flying fowl. Kings of the earth and all peoples. Princes and all judges of the earth. Both young men and maidens. Lift up your hearts. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name in all the earth. You are glorious and worthy of all praise. From the depths, the great sea creatures, they praise you. Fire, hail, snow, clouds, storms, they all fulfill the word that you declare. Mountains, hills, trees, birds, creeping insects, all praise your holy name. Kings, princes, judges, and indeed all peoples of the earth, the young and the old alike, are all called to praise your name, which alone is exalted. Your glory is above the earth and heaven. We thank you that you have chosen us to bear both your image as well as the name of Jesus on our lips this morning. We ask that you would cause us, by the power of the Spirit, to be lifted into the heavenly places this morning as our prayers, our praises, our worship ascends to you. 
We ask this in the good and strong name of Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. And amen. Amen. Today is the second Sunday of Easter, also known, uh, Easter, which is also known as Resurrection Day. So it's the second Sunday of Resurrection Day. The resurrection has, of course, massive implications for Christians. Everything has changed. Nothing will ever be the same now that the stone has been rolled away and Christ has risen from the dead. For the disciples at that time, living through the arc of this history, watching their Lord's public murder at the hands of the Romans, instigated by the rebellious Jews, and then seeing him alive again, this news must have seemed too good to be true. But the news was true, and it was good. However, truly believing that this gospel had occurred did not come naturally. The evening, the actual evening following Christ's resurrection, the disciples had gathered together in a locked room because of fear. Fear was the all-encompassing, all-consuming emotion of the day, and so they hid and they barred the door. Of course, you probably know the story. Jesus, newly resurrected from the dead, his, his new glorified body, not even 24 hours old, um, was in fact, this new resurrected body was in fact more physical, more real, more solid than the locked doors or walls. He simply entered the room. Jesus enters the room and he says, peace be with you. This greeting, while common amongst the Jews had been made new by the resurrection of Christ. He was offering them peace over fear. Peace that would set them free from their chains of cowardice, pettiness, rivalries. A peace that would one day produce in them such courage that they would utterly confound the apostate Jews who sought to stop their mouths at whatever the cost. This was resurrection peace. You see, when we are set free from the fear of death, no enemy can ever hold us captive again. The enemy has been completely stripped of all power. Christ has risen from the dead, has set us free from the fear of death, and has given us resurrection peace. This peace is freely offered to all who call upon the name of the Lord. If you desire to have this peace, which we are promised surpasses all understanding, You must believe in the resurrection of our Lord and be willing to love, follow, and obey Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, as well as love your neighbor as you love yourself. When you do, you can bring bring to Jesus your cowardice, your pettiness, your rivalries. You can confess them to Jesus Christ. In exchange for these vile sins, you will be given resurrection peace. And since we have all failed... We've all failed to love Christ and our neighbor. We failed this week. We failed this morning. We may have even failed in the last minute. So since we've all failed, let's make sure we are right with God before we go any farther into worship. So as you are able, will you kneel with me as we confess our sins together? Scripture says in Psalm 32, 3-4, excuse me, Scripture says in Revelation, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. 
His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went its sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining in strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his hand, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. So if you have your uh, bulletin with you, will you pray with me out loud as we confess corporately together from the historic prayer you will find in your bulletin. Let's pray together. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have disobeyed your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. We have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. But you, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare us, O God, who confess to you our faults. Restore those who are penitent, according to your promises, declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of thy holy name. We now confess to you, we can now confess to God our private sins during this time of silence. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. And amen. Amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Scripture says in Psalm 103, verses 8 through 12, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. People of God, you have humbled yourself in faith. Now hear the good news and believe your sins are forgiven through Christ. Let's sing the doxology in response to this glorious news. Now bless the Lord. Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the first gospel, the gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 1 through 10, but we'll be focusing on verse 8 for our sermon text. So hear now the word of the Lord as it's found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Seeing the crowds, he that is Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for its clarity, for the light it provides, that in these pages we know your will for us. 
We ask, O Lord, that even as we read today, as we hear the word preached, that you would search our hearts, that you would see any grievous way that remains in us, and that you would purify our hearts so that we might see Jesus and might see you, O Father. O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we pray all this for the good name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This morning as we look at the beatitude, blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. Um, Before we do that, actually, I want to say one quick thing. My wife's going to be embarrassed about this. But many of you may remember the last time I was here, I mentioned bed bugs. Well, we are totally free from those. So even as I see people scoot away from us, we can bring it back in. My wife said to me, I've never felt so betrayed. Um, Well, this morning we get to consider one of the Beatitudes that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount. Before we dive into the sermon, I want to give just a little bit of backstory, a little context as we consider what Jesus is doing here and what Jesus has to say for us today. For those of you familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, you know that it's divided up really into five even sections between narrative and and teaching. Jesus tells us something, he teaches us something, and he shows us something. And really, that's Matthew's discipleship strategy. Jesus teaches us, and he shows us. Well, as we enter into the Sermon on the Mount, this is Jesus' first teaching section, his first extended teaching section. And Matthew, he does it strategically. He wants to know why Jesus teaches this. He wants to know, he's giving us a particular point about what Jesus is trying to say, because Matthew 5 comes, believe it or not, right after Matthew 4. And in Matthew 4, right before the Sermon on the Mount, we're told that Jesus goes throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So as Jesus begins his kingdom preaching, The first thing we learn about this kingdom preaching is that the Sermon on the Mount. And that's important for us because it describes for us how we are to understand and to incorporate these Beatitudes into our lives. What do they mean for us now? How do we live by them? It's important to note because there are really two temptations when we look at the Beatitudes. There's two schools of thought, competing schools of thought, about what it means to read these Beatitudes and how they apply. The first school says, well, these are entry requirements. These are what you have to look like to get into the kingdom. And it doesn't, shouldn't take us too long to realize what's wrong with that is we read these and we learn pretty quick that we don't measure up to that. If that were the case, then none of us would enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's the first temptation. That's legalism. But there's an opposite temptation, and that's to see these Beatitudes as really unattainable ideals. Castles in the sky that no one can attain to, and we should really just think happily about them and move on our merry way. could call that idealism. Legalism and idealism. These two competing schools of how to interpret the Beatitudes. But really, if we understand that these Beatitudes make up the kingdom preaching of Jesus, then we understand, we can learn, that the Beatitudes are neither entry requirements nor the unattainable standards. They are what it looks like when the kingdom 
makes residence in our hearts. That what it looks like when people begin to live in accord with Jesus' word, it's what it looks like for people who know what it means to call God as their Father and to be indwelt by the Spirit. So, what that means for us is, regardless of what we want to hear or what we'd like to hear, these Beatitudes tell us, tell us how to live. They tell us how to live in light of Jesus and in light of his reign. Now, I mentioned the first temptation was legalism. The second one was the unattainable standard. And for us, as we read Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. Excuse me, pure in heart, for they shall see God. As soon as we read this verse, I think we realize what the problem is. All the other Beatitudes are pretty manageable, right? You can be meek, generally. Maybe not all the time, but generally meek. You can hunger and thirst for righteousness on occasion. But the word pure, it excludes any sort of mixture. It's like the word unique. You can't be sort of unique. You can't be sort of pure. It's all or nothing. So when posed in those terms, I think we see what the problem is. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We realize the immensity of what Jesus is saying here, because none of us could ever call ourselves pure in heart. Now, we say things that resemble purity of heart all the time, right? If someone is affable and kind, we say that they're good-hearted. If someone's magnanimous, virtuous, we say they have a heart of gold. In the South, it's an insult. Bless your heart. Though we rarely have ever used the term pure in heart. We certainly don't use it about ourselves. We don't use it about other people because we know fundamentally that it's simply not true. We know that if other people are like us, and they are, then they carry things in their hearts deep down that if we could see them, if we could know them, we would be disturbed because we know what's in our hearts. And each one of us, at the very core of our being, not just our emotions or the thoughts that flip through our mind unwanted, we know that at the soul level that we carry something that makes us impure. The great Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn said it this way, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Sultanitsyn is saying, if only the problem were out there, if only the impurity of heart were out there, that we could just fix and be done with it. We could be these pure-hearted people that Jesus is talking about. But Sultanitsyn knows, just like the rest of us, that's not the case. So how does this passage, both in its demands, and what I would argue its promises, how does that challenge us and comfort us today to live as people who follow Jesus? Even as we realize what it means to be pure-hearted, even as we realize how poorly we match that. Well, I want to answer that question 
What does this give us both in terms of comfort and challenge? By looking at three things in this, ch- this passage. First, I want to look at the heart and what makes it pure. Second, I want to look at the pure heart that will see God. And I want to look at the pure heart that has seen God. So three things, the heart and what makes it pure, the pure heart that will see God, and the pure heart that has seen God. So first, the heart and what makes it pure. Well, in today's psychology, in just our general culture, we associate the heart with emotions, with feelings, anything really that can't be quantified, right? When we see someone leave it all in the field, and give it everything they've got, we say that this person has a lot of heart. If you break up with someone, you're heartbroken. It's really the romantic urge in us that separates thinking from feeling, and the heart just dominates feeling. But for the Bible, it's really not that clear-cut. In Jewish ways of thinking, in Scripture, the heart is really much more encompassing than just our feelings. It's actually your will, your emotions, and your intellect. It's your entire person in one place. Some scholars call it the seat of your person. It's the seat of your person. It's where everything about you, what you like, what you want, what you think, what you feel, where all the intersects and where your person lives out into the world. One commentator said that the heart is the core of the person, that, which from, that place from which we feel, we think, and we determine our actions. So if you're a Star Trek fan, picture Captain Picard or Captain Kirk sitting in his chair, making his decisions, telling everything else what to do. That's the heart. We might talk about this in terms of the self. It's who we are, fundamentally, down at the base level. So if that's the heart, just who we are most fundamentally, what is it that makes it pure? What do we mean when we talk about purity of heart? Well, some have said that the purity of heart is to will one thing, to will one thing, to be myopic in your concern. That's sort of what the Bible's getting at, single-mindedness. But it's really much more. There's the question of integrity, about the alignment of our inner selves and our outer selves, our words and our actions and our thoughts, they're certainly there. The Bible, when it talks about purity of heart, means something a little bit deeper. And that's this. We get a clue of what it means when we consider the various places that Scripture talks about a purity of heart. And the clearest reference that we have from this passage is Psalm 24. Psalm 24. So if you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn there. Psalm 24, the gate liturgy of the people of Israel. Now, beginning in verse 3, the psalmist asks, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Here's the important part. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So for the sake of brevity, I want to highlight just 
two things here about this psalm. First, notice that the whole psalm, at least this passage that we read, has to do with worship. It has to do with the man whose heart is turned towards the Lord, who seeks the face of the God of Jacob, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, who does not swear deceitfully. All of these terms, all these phrases, refer either implicitly or explicitly to the worship of the people of God. So that's important to note. And that has to do with worship. Second, note the location of this pure-hearted person in the psalm. It's the hill of the Lord. It's the holy place. It's the temple. All of these clues, I suggest to you, give us a description of what it means in the Bible to be pure-hearted and what Matthew wants us to think of when we think of being pure-hearted. And here's how I would describe it for you. The purity of heart is the controlling, comprehensive, and constant commitment to and desire for the true worship of God. That's a little bit of a mouthful. I want to say it one more time. Purity of heart is the controlling, comprehensive, and constant commitment to and desire for the worship of God. So to lay that out real quickly, what do I mean by the controlling, comprehensive, and constant desire for the worship of God? Well, first... Purity of heart in the Bible is a controlling commitment, meaning that the concern for the worship of God and his glory is the very thing that guides your decisions in your life, whether it's your professional decisions, your personal decisions, your family, how you raise your children, where you go to church. It's the glory of God and true worship of his name that controls you. It is your GPS. But the purity of heart is also comprehensive, meaning it covers everything you do, everything you think, everything you feel, everything you choose. Like when you put a bit of tincture in the water and the tincture covers the entire glass and the entire water is adulterated by this color, that's what it means to be pure in heart. And finally, purity of heart is constant, meaning it never ceases. In the face of the vicissitudes of life, the ebbs and flows of cultural pressures, it's the worship of God and his glory that remains your north star. Never changing, always there. David, in Psalm 24, puts it this way, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. It's that one thing that he has asked of the Lord, the one thing that he seeks after, that he can dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. That's purity of heart in the Bible. So as I I said these things, I hope that you were beginning to make a checklist of where you stood. What was the thing that controls you? What is the motivation that is there guiding your decisions Is it insecurity? Is it personal ambition? Is it just the desire to know or to think that people respect you and like you and think you're intelligent? Or what is it the thing that constantly touches everything in your life? Is it the fear of finances? The crushing anxiety that one day someone's going to find out that you're a fraud? And what's the constant for you? Is it the fear of the future? Is it bitterness of someone who failed you? 
Once you can answer these questions, what is constant for you, what covers everything for you, and what controls you, then you begin to understand what you worship and where your heart's actually directed to. So that's the heart and its purity. What now, as Jesus says, about the pure-hearted person that will see God? Why does Jesus add this here? And what does it have to say to us in our lives today? So we're approaching this attitude, assuming that it tells us how to live in Jesus' kingdom. But Jesus here gives us a future promise that we will see God. The pure-hearted person is blessed because they are given, what I'm going to argue here, the desires of their hearts. They're the people who, over the course of their life, their basic disposition has been bent towards God and His glory and His worship. And now, at the end of their lives, they're given the desire of their hearts. They're given what they've wanted all along. This sort of thing isn't brand new in the New Testament. Saints in the Old Testament constantly express the desire to see God. Psalm 17, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness when I awake I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Or Psalm 11:7, The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. And Job, of course, declares that I will look upon the Lord in the land of the living. So all these, the culmination of this Old Testament longings, the Old Testament desire to see God is fulfilled in what Jesus promises here. So going back to my introduction, remember my two pitfalls, the equals and opposite errors of legalism and idealism. The blessedness that Jesus awards here, the promise of seeing God, I'm going to argue is the very reason we know that this isn't some unattainable standard. This isn't something that people are given even though they don't want it. Jesus does not say that the purity of heart occurs when we see God, although in some sense that's true. Those who see God, they already love Him. They already desire Him. They already want to worship Him in spirit and in truth. If they didn't want those things, then an eternity in the presence of God would not be a blessing. The purity of heart believers display here, it's the training and the preparation they are receiving for being in the presence of the one whom their soul loves. The desires that control the saints is the desire that will be satisfied. Here's a simpler way for me to say that. If you do not love worshiping God, obeying his commands, and glorifying his name here in this life, what makes you think that you'll enjoy it in the next? If you are not striving for true worship and obedience right now, what leads you to think that you'll want to do it when you come face to face with the Lord? Do you make God's glory, honor, and praise your heart's desire? Or do you expect those things to happen overnight, as if by magic? Are we putting to death the old man and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we putting aside the flesh and its desires and taking up the spirit and its desires? That's the way that we begin practicing what Jesus is talking about here. Do we think on what is excellent, what is commendable, what is worthy of praise? 
Or do we turn on Netflix and think I'll get to that next week? Or I'll do it tomorrow. This, I suggest to you, is the first way that this beatitude speaks to us. It makes real, inescapable demands of us. Demands that are very clearly not natural habits of our hearts. But that's not the only thing that we should get from this beatitude. We shouldn't just be challenged. It's not just a demand that it gives us. Because gospel logic, remember this is the preaching of the gospel and its kingdom that Jesus is giving us. So we need to understand this through the light of the gospel. And God never gives us just a naked imperative. And here is the third point that I want us to see in this text. The pure heart that has seen God. Jesus promises that those who are pure in heart, they will see God, referring to a future state, specifically when God establishes his final kingdom here. But we're missing something fundamental if that's all we see. Because when Jesus comes preaching the kingdom, excuse me, the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, he isn't just the herald of that kingdom. We need to understand who Jesus is in the kingdom if we're going to understand what it means for Jesus to preach to us the kingdom. When the Pharisees ask Jesus about when the kingdom is coming in Luke 17, Jesus says this, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, when Jesus said that, he did not mean that the kingdom of God already exists in all of our hearts, We're all true participants in God's kingdom. That is not what he means at all. What he means, something far more extraordinary. He stands in their midst and says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. What he means is that he himself is the kingdom of God. He comes as the herald of the kingdom. He comes as the king of the kingdom. And he comes as the kingdom of God itself. So if we take that, that principle, that Jesus is king, proclaimer, and kingdom itself, and apply that to what Jesus is telling us in the Beatitude, what do we get? I want you to get a little bit of irony here. We get God himself standing in the midst of people, telling them that if they're pure in heart, they will see him. Do you get that? That he's already let them see him. He comes to people impure in heart. He comes to zealots, tax collectors, prostitutes. And he says, if you're pure in heart, you will see me, even as they look on him. And here's where the gospel comes into play for us in this beatitude. By nature, you and I, we're children of wrath. Paul says that we were hated by others and hating one another. Suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And as we've talked about, it made it very plain our hearts were not pure. In fact, in our hearts, we said that God didn't exist. But before we repented, before we decided to clean ourselves up, before we even began to realize that there was something wrong, God came to us in Jesus Christ. 
He let us see him, even though nothing in us desired it or deserved it. It was simply grace. It was the kingdom of God coming in and beginning in us its reign. And he not only showed his love for us by forgiving us, he showed us his love by giving us the ability actually to do what he commands. Actually to live like what he tells us here. So if you felt depressed by the demands of this beatitude, even if you read this and you were like, well, this can't be good for me. I also now want you to feel the freedom that this beatitude offers. God came to you in your impurity. He forgave it, and then he enabled you to pursue a pure heart. This is what Calvin calls the double gift that we have in Christ. We're both justified, forgiven, accounted as perfectly righteous in God's sight, and then we're sanctified. We're given a right spirit within us. God renews us and fills us with the ability to live out his commands. And all of this comes to us in the Lord Jesus. Because you are in him, because you have been united to him by faith, the promise of the gospel is not only a righteousness that is not yours, but it's a spirit that is not yours too. You are given a new heart, transferred from the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. And you died to sin and you live unto righteousness now. And as Christians, you have victory over sin. You can walk in a pure heart, not because you're perfect or because you by yourself have a pure heart, but because you in Christ have a pure heart. Remember what Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In this life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. As we reflect on what the sight of Jesus does, it's amazing to think about. It turned Saul into Paul. It made the man who murdered Christians say that he counted it all as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ to suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish so that he might gain Christ. The gospel makes martyrs out of murderers, saints out of sinners, and believe it or not, pure-hearted people out of people like you and me. So our hearts in this world are far from perfect, but Christ's words here in the Beatitude should give us both a significant challenge. There is something being demanded of us here, and we should not forget that. But at the same time, there is overwhelming comfort. The significant challenge is that call to purity of heart, to be people so radically concerned with God and his glory that nothing else can distract us, that everything falls in line with that. But right where the challenge ends is where the overwhelming comfort comes in. That in Christ Jesus, you are already considered pure-hearted. And by the Spirit, you can actually live like it. And that's the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to know that in our sin and in our misery, you counted it great joy to come to us. That Christ did not count equality with you, O Father, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and came to us.
Father, we thank you for the promise of the gospel that even in our continued imperfection in Christ Jesus, we are made new, that we are given a new heart, a heart of flesh, a pure heart directed to you. And we ask, Father, that even in our frailty, that you would strengthen us and enable us to pursue you and your glory and all that it entails in our lives that we might be found in Christ Jesus in the last day. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. We come to the Lord's table each week because communing with Christ at his table, feasting on his body seen in the broken bread, and drinking his blood as represented in the cup of wine, communing with him is a privilege that is so glorious, so wonderful, We should be looking forward to it all week long. This is where our heart's desire should be. Just as Brother Britton said, for those who are pure in heart, we get to see God. We get to feast upon Him every week. Not because we are pure in and of of ourselves. No, we know that that's not true. But because the perfect work of Christ makes us pure. It qualifies us to commune with the King of Kings. It's not us, it's Christ. And so I call all who belong to Christ, all who have been baptized and who are not under church discipline, come and welcome to Jesus. Will you stand for the charge and the benediction? We are on the mountain with God right now. We might be tempted to be like Peter and to want to build a tabernacle tabernacle here and never leave. But we have to leave. We have to come off the mountain. We have to go back out into the world. And so as we go back out into the world, may our hearts be controlled by purity comprehensively and completely. Come down the mountain with your heart set on coming back again next week. Dwelling in the house of the Lord should be the desire that we cultivate throughout the week. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now receive the benediction from Psalm 148, verses 11 through 14. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all judges of the earth, both young men and maidens, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord. For his name alone is exalted, his glory is above the earth and heaven, and he has exalted the horn of his people, the praise of all his saints, of the children of Israel, a people near to him, Praise the Lord in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.